Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to November's Donor Pick episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast in December. Sorry, we're a little bit late, but holidays and such, you know? I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and thankfully I am not the last man alive, so my best friend and co-host Patrick can join me for this episode. It's good to be here, Aaron. We are wrapping up our series of conversations about movies with dogs, and let me tell you all that I somewhat regret letting this be a choice now after having rewatched it, because... Man, oh man, it is not always easy with regard to the canine companion. But we will push through this and discuss it anyway, because the people, otherwise known as our incredible patrons who support us each month financially over at patreon.com slash film while getting some fun perks, they demanded it. But enough with the long-winded intro, Patrick. Let's get into it. We're going to do that as we always do. By starting with our one more takeaway. So I'm going to kick it to you, my friend. Depressing, but not as depressing as Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> so I feel like. Is that our new gonna, like benchmark for depressing? That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with, a, with, with the pursuit of happiness being a close second in terms of like just uber depressing. That's Will has, Smith. So that's more. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So this is, this is better than pursuit of happiness, Will Smith for me. Um, I, remember watching this in the theaters and cringing at the fact that what we see specifically with our canine friend is just sad and i wasn't looking forward to experiencing that again and i was going to just default to it being my connecting point but i digressed and decided okay fresh eyes let's do this and when I say depressing, I don't mean that it wasn't enjoyable because I think the movie as a whole really does stand out as a pretty great blend of horror, suspense, drama. And it's something that when I watched it the first time, I was kind of frustrated because I had read the short story. And as most reviews will tell you, it diverges significantly from the short story. But as I've grown to appreciate book-to-movie adaptations and maintaining that sense of tone and character development and the consistency there, I really appreciated it this time around. Um, even having an experience of getting more used to horror elements, this one I think sat better with me than it probably would have a few years ago uh, because of my experience on the podcast and getting kind of used to the horror aspect of it. The jump scares are still just no goes for me. I don't like those at all. But overall, I think that Will Smith does a fantastic job. And the dynamic of having to occupy a space with only an animal at your side most of the time is such a it's such a hard thing to do. I mean, we've seen stories of isolation. Tom Hanks, of course, is up there with Castaway. And it definitely falls on the main character and i think will smith this is one of his best yeah i do too i mean he carries it and you're right like he's acting by himself so for 90 percent <laughs> of the movie and that's no hard thing or no easy thing rather to do i guess he's not acting by himself he's acting with 
a canine, which is maybe even harder than acting with yourself, is to actually interact with a dog actor. I went with the word horrific because watching through it this time, it struck me just how horrific the situation in the story presents is. And it wasn't because of the scary infected. Yes, they are pretty terrifying, honestly. And I remember them that sticks out in the movie because your jump scares and those moments, that's going to be something that is just embedded in your mind. And so it's easily rememberable. But what really was more terrifying to me this time around was watching this with a heightened sense of what the character was going through with regards to loneliness, grief, and depression, because those are such extremely relevant topics right now. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but you know, when living is just as terrible as potentially being killed or turned into one of these monsters, that's some extreme emotional and psychological horror there. And it doesn't require any of the gruesome blood and guts that you don't like and that I don't prefer. So I thought that this was great on this watch, this viewing I love that you mentioned it was on, based on a short story because I have not read the short story. And the fact that it's a quote unquote short right there in the title story does speak to just the construction of this a bit because it is just really in and out this movie. It, it's fairly tight. It's about what one hour and 40 minutes ish. And it just moves really fast. It doesn't give us a whole lot of story outside of like one or two days. That stuck out to me as well. Uh, But yeah, overall, one more takeaway was horrific for me, but not in the way that you might think when you're watching a normal horror movie. So I thought that that was refreshing. Well, this is our spoiler warning, folks. We are going to talk about the movie in detail. If you haven't seen it, you should do so. It's a good one. Check it out. Come back. Listen to this episode. Patrick, we're going to start by talking about the Crippen virus, which I actually don't know if it's named in the movie. I think it might have been early on, like in one of the bits of exposition where they're explaining kind of what happened when the world fell apart. Uh, It does get mentioned specifically as KV, I know, which is what it goes by as well. So I want to talk about that thing that I touched on there in my one more takeaway. What is it like for you watching it this time? And I'm glad that we're actually watching a movie this week that you've seen more than once. That's a rarity, it seems. Sometimes, or maybe just recently, but we seem to have been hitting on a lot of things that you're seeing for the first time. So this is something you actually have a comparison to make for. What's it like that's different watching it now in the time of COVID-19 when we are experiencing, <laughs> I wouldn't say something similar because it's not like they're infected out there running around, but in terms of some of the isolation and some of the effects of the virus that the character has experienced and what, what we do see in the backstory of how the world kind of dealt with the situation when it came about, what does that feel like for you watching it now? It still feels extreme because of the fact that we're now seeing the aftermath of it, but living in, I won't even say a post-COVID world because we're still in COVID, the idea of being able to adapt to a different kind of living is becoming more familiar. What we have is a guy like Robert who 
the movie opens up with him driving through the city and we don't know what's going on. And then we see the deer coming out and we realize he's essentially on a mobile hunting trip trying to capture some food. And then we see him a couple of scenes later making dinner. He's got the TV on. And it's this weird contrast, Aaron, where you have this destroyed city and he's got this house that looks normal. It's still got power. He's able to cook vegetables. It doesn't look like a post-apocalyptic world in some cases. And to me, living in a time when I still have power in my house, when I can still go to Kroger and buy food, some of those things felt eerily familiar that I am trying to adapt to the limitations that are being given to me wearing a mask, going to places at certain times of the day, only having a certain amount of time to hang out in certain places, being around people in a certain number. While none of those are directly connected in I Am Legend, there is a sense when we are sort of not mandated, but strongly urged to not hang out with each other, that we are trying to stay connected. And in particular, what I connected to was Robert's desire to carry on conversations with mannequins (laughs) he recognizes to an extent that he doesn't have people that he can talk to and he actually creates these dialogues and these stories these narratives that i think i haven't experienced that because i've been around my wife and my child but i also understand that mentalities change that we become hypersensitive to things. And I think that's depicted pretty well in this movie where if you're around the same people or you're experiencing the same kind of information all the time, you tend to kind of get brainwashed by that life. And we start thinking of these inconveniences as taking away our freedoms and like, I'm not going to do this. And now masks have become political. I think for him and this story as a whole, I think it's more of, a metaphor for what things could be (laughs) if we don't take things seriously, if we choose to believe the world that we're in is full of lies and deceit. And I think that's kind of what I Am Legend gets at in that early part where people were just not taking it seriously. And then it just suddenly kind of came on them and then just spread like COVID did. So living this time, I I would say that it's, more familiar, but probably not necessarily ultimately connectable. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think that for me, the connections lie in mostly the flashbacks and the way we see the world respond. The fact that the opening of the film before the awesome quote unquote opening sequence that you are talking about where we're introduced to Robert driving down the road, like speeding through in this Shelby GT. It's, it's a freaking excellent scene, by the way. Like it's oh, one, yeah. I consider it the opening scene and it's an awesome opening scene all the way up to like thinking he's got him. It's post credits. It's the post credits scene, I think, right? Pre credits, right? Is it pre credits? Okay. Well, post credits would be after the movie. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, what I meant was, after the title sequence, then we get his scene. That's why I think. Yeah, I think so. First scene. Yeah. So the credit, the opening credits Good give you the context and then the first full scene without the credits. That's what I meant. Yeah. So that one, it's awesome. All the way up to the lions jumping out. Like that's one of the best jump scares in the whole freaking movie, honestly. Anyway, 
before that, we are starting by listening to the news. And it's a normal day. And, and I love that. I love that we start off on just a regular old day. They're talking about sports. They're talking about the Knicks and the Patriots and all these different games that are happening. And we get to an interview with a scientist. And they're ta- basically, they're explaining that we have discovered the cure for cancer. And they're going to put it out there, right? And then we learn through that and then ultimately through flashbacks, of course, that quickly it all went south. And when the virus becomes lethal, New York City becomes military quarantine. And that is the part that I definitely started to kind of resonate with. And I don't know that I would say... I mean, obviously not directly. I haven't experienced a military quarantine, but more so than you have, I've seen my city completely shut down, like to become a ghost town um, for a number of months in a way that is unreal for a city that has millions of people in it. And when we watch this start to be enacted, um, one thing that really stuck out to me is as Robert and his family are trying to get away, are trying to exit. He's getting special treatment because he's a virologist in the military, for one thing. And so they're kind of being rushed up there. And his wife tests negative or positive, basically. She scans positive as having been exposed, and therefore she has to stay on the island quarantined. She can't leave. And there's chaos, right, all around. And he is like, no, 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 you test her again. And what stuck out to me is the lack of equity here. (laughs) And I know this is a fictional world, but when I'm comparing it to like reality, he, because of his position and station, is able to have her scanned again. And what happens? It's a negative. It's a false positive that would have kept her on the island in quarantine. And so... It's never really dived into in the in the film, right? They don't like go into this big like you know t- exposition about it, but that's the exact thing we deal with right now in real life is hey, how do we trust the tools that we supposedly have that are telling us that we are a thing, i.e. negative or positive for said virus because you can't know because just like COVID the virus that they have is not something that immediately affects them, right? In a physical manifestation way. And so that was creeping me out, man. I was like, this woman could have been stuck there, basically told that she was, you know, infected, but she wasn't (laughs) because the stupid little beeper thing didn't work. So that just really, really stuck out to me. And then the way in which uh, almost it reminded me of Dark Knight, honestly, like when you watch the bridges get shot down, it's like uh, the scene in Dark Knight Rises where Bane blows the bridges and locks them down into the city that and, and people are try- at the edges of the bridges trying to get away. It felt very similar to that. Obviously, that's not COVID related, but just and it, those things watching the crowds in those opening moments was kind of terrifying to me because. I feel like there were moments over the summer where it felt it was like we were pushing towards that in cities. You know, New York was at a point where it started to 
feel like maybe they were going to get to this. Like you were going to have to quarantine the whole city because you couldn't let it get out. And it just makes you really nervous. And, it, and there's no good answers. There's no, I'm not saying this is wrong. This is right. I'm saying it sucks. <laughs> and, um, it's terrifying to think about having to go through something like that. And then likewise, just with the isolation of it all, as you were mentioning, you know, I, I haven't talked to myself either. And frankly, I'm of the type of personality, I've mentioned this in the podcast before, where COVID's not totally destroying my life because I kind of like to be a loner. And so let me work from home, please. Like, I wish you'd let me work from home all the time, every single day of my life. That'd be great. But there are elements of what he has to experience that we have seen ourselves have to grow more accustomed to in ways that we've never, ever been exposed to before. And it was different just watching that now. I think just it's always when you've watched these post-apocalyptic kind of virus movies, it's always been sci-fi. It's always been a thing that, oh, that could happen one day. That's that's a that could happen. It's just it's not real. But now it's real. It's, it's kind of happened and we've experienced it in our own ways. And so it just, you just watch them through a different lens, man. Well, I, I talk a little bit about the backstories, the flashbacks to me, what I, you know, really jumped out at them. Were you, how did you feel about the flashbacks? Because it's a storytelling choice. I don't know what the book does. Um, but that's essentially how we kind of learn about why Robert is the last man in the city. By the way, this totally made me want to reread Why the Last Man. I was thinking about it the whole time I was watching it. And I was, I started thinking about like, oh man, is that ever going to get its awesome series adaptation that's been like fallen through 15 times? Probably not, but it deserves it. It really does. I like this kind of story and this idea. Uh, but anyway, what did you think about that? Like, how do you think that the flashbacks kind of showed us how he became the survivor that he was. I think they gave him context more than anything else. And they added to the believability of his need to live, not just survive. It gave him credibility in terms of his occupations and wanting to be someone who wasn't trying to be heroic, but was really trying to solve a problem and one who was determined to do that. It allowed me to see more of the motivation and why he does that. I think the what it does more than anything is those flashbacks reinforce the importance of memories and the ability to think back on a family that was lost. Yes, there's definitely grief that's attached to that, but I think us seeing into his mind's eye with regard to getting out of the city, how he eventually gets Sam and all those things they answer questions that we don't necessarily need to answers to, but they add to the story in a way that helps us have some empathy for him because otherwise we're just watching a survival story. We're watching a guy who is trying to just get through and solve a problem. And it's with those flashback sequences that his humanity is still a reminder to us. And it's different than something like 28 days later, which is really about a disease, a man and zombies. And that's a good thing. But that storytelling choice puts a lot of focus on the survival aspect of it as opposed to 
what we see with Robert, who tries to maintain a sense of normalcy, even down to cooking a meal for him and his dog and making his dog eat the vegetables as if he's a child and talking to him about his frustration, why he didn't just don't just push those around. You got to eat those vegetables. I don't think he's patronizing himself. I think he is genuinely trying to maintain connectivity in a way that feels natural to him. And we've talked about this over the last month about that relationship between a man and his dog and the way that we talk to our canines. It's different than the way we talk to our children or our spouses. Here, I think Sam becomes more than just a canine companion. Sam becomes a friend because we see in one of those flashback sequences that Sam was a puppy. Like they just got her and she was oh so cute. Uh, I will just say German Shepherd puppies are just the cutest. And so knowing that we have context, even after he has to kill her, we flash back to a moment with, with him and her. And it's just all those things I I think are, are good because they round out his life. And if anybody's listening, if you're a fan of the show, This Is Us, this is what Vogelman and his crew do all the time. They go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to help you add context. I joke with Krisha that I want to watch that show at some point in chronological order. Like I want all the episodes to be cut up and, you know, diced together so I can see the entire Pearson family lineage go from like what we've been exposed to in terms of the patriarch all the way up through the grandkids. And I think that when flashback sequences are used effectively like they are here, they really do elevate the story more. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, one of the things that sticks out to me about him and his survival that really is highlighted in the flashbacks at one point is early on, he talks about how he's got to, he's got to fix this. I mean, the very first moment when he is picking up his wife and daughter and talking to them about like, Hey, it got bad. You know, everybody's going to be asked to leave. He's like, I can fix this. And we hear him repeat the words, I can fix this, over and over throughout the story, starting in the flashbacks, chronologically speaking, all the way up until the end, because he really does believe in that. And it's important for me because I think it gives him more of a heroic nature to himself. Like, he's not in it just for his own survival. He is trying to survive and solve the problem for the world. And he was trying to do that while he had a family. And now that he has lost his family, obviously he is even more committed to it in a sense, but he knows it's not going to bring them back. And he would have done this anyway. And so I think that that makes him a really intriguing and just easily root rootable that's not a word it's easy to root for him in my opinion Uh, and that's not always the case you know a lot of times you randomly get chosen to be the last blah 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 in a story like this in the post-apocalyptic world there's going to be elements of your character that are not necessarily great 
you know, I think maybe Max might be a good example in the Mad Max series. There's parts of Max that are not the best. Like he leaves people behind, you know, he's not quick to just help everybody out on it. But th- that's not what Robert Neville is about. Robert Neville was all about helping people and just so dedicated to saving it. And so for me, that was highlighted in those flashbacks where, you know, you watch all of these things occur as the world is breaking down or as the city is breaking down. And then obviously the tragedy. And yet he is still so committed to the point where he goes out to the the dock every single day and leaves the exact same message. And what is his message? His message is hope for others. And I love his message, man. I love that. It's not, Hey, I'm Robert Neville. I'm stuck in the city. Come help me. It's, Hey, if you're listening, I want you to know you're not alone, that there is hope and come find me and let's do it together. And so you get a lot of those moments uh, of character development through. And I, I think that the way that the flashbacks are integrated work out really well in this one. I, I don't think it would be nearly as intriguing if it was straightforward honestly and it would be very difficult to cover one or two days in the present timeline if you were gonna show the past first it would just feel kind of awkward i think and and i like it well as i mentioned in my one more takeaway the film is horrific to me uh, because of the grief the loneliness the depression and those other elements that we see robert going through And I I wanted to know how that worked for you. Like, did that affect you? And I'm going to ask you this. Like, how do you think you would handle being in Robert's situation if you were the last man alive compared to, you know, what is it that you see him do that maybe you were like, oh, hey, that's really smart. I should do that, but I probably wouldn't have. (laughs) And then is there anything you would have done differently and maybe given him some advice? I would definitely play golf. I would definitely ride through the streets of the city in a fantastic sports car. I would probably not be able to fire a gun. I'd have to learn, obviously. And I think that it would make me feel... The movie made me feel inadequate, honestly. Because... The things that he was doing besides cooking, I would have to learn those things. And the fact that he had purpose underneath the house with his lab work really amped up that beyond survival mentality, that looking at a hope for the future, as you mentioned. I don't know that I would survive that. I think that as someone who likes his independence, I recognize my need to be around people and my love language is words of affirmation. So not being around anybody would absolutely kill me to be alone with my thoughts. I think that I would probably stay in survival mode, which wouldn't be healthy. And eventually I would probably succumb to these zombie creatures because I would just go nuts or I would just lose the will to live. Even with those memories like he has, had I been equipped with his skill set, probably something different would happen. But for me, I think I would, my word for him would be admiration. Like I'm, I admire the fact that he is capable of not only surviving, but really living and living decently in that world 
where I would probably be scrounging in the garbage trying to find some thing just to just to survive on. I also love Aaron the fact that he has a message that is being broadcast on all the AM stations and that he says, Hey, at noon when the sun's highest, here's where I'm gonna be. And for him, I would say that's probably the most mentally healthy thing he can do is to look forward to that moment, to know that, hey, any day at noon, there could be somebody that meets me. And I think that's great to have that routine. And I think that's what the film does well in showing that he has this routine. From the very beginning, we know that he probably goes out and hunts. If he gets anything, he brings it back. He cooks. He shuts down the house, closes everything off, and then sleeps in the bathtub. Yeah, not an ideal situation, but it's routine. And those things, I think, are what help people maintain a sense of good mental health in situations like that. That would probably be what I would adapt to. Man, that's a really good point. And I think that there's a pro and a con when it comes to the routine, because I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that that's one of the things that keeps a man sane for, what is it, two years, I think it's been? Or has it been five, something like that? I don't know. It's been a while uh, when we cut to the present that he's been living like this it's one of the things that would help him give his day-to-day life purpose because hey like you said i gotta get up i gotta do this thing i gotta be at this place at this time i gotta accomplish this i gotta go and scrounge for food and medical supplies i've got to make sure that i don't come back to my house until nighttime because i don't want to bring them back here I want to, you know, do all of these very methodical steps. The place I think that that can be a curse is if you're not adaptable when the shit hits the fan and you have to break routine, right? I'm, this is where I actually struggle some. I am really good at creating efficiencies. I'm really good at establishing routines and sticking to them. Like, super good. But, when I have to break my routine, it takes me a minute. And you know this. Uh, my coworkers definitely know this. My family knows this. I'll get there, and I'll usually get there fairly quick. But I go through a moment of a breakdown, essentially. Like, I have a mental period where I have to freak out that my routine is being messed up. I get upset. I get frustrated. And... In his situation, that can be deadly if you're not able to adapt. And I think it's interesting here because his background kind of – it's almost a cheat, Patrick, in a way, because he's the one that's immune randomly, and he has both the military background and the science background to survive and to find a cure. Like he is – you and I couldn't do these things. So even if we were able to keep ourselves safe, right? You and I would not be able to discover the cure or even attempt to. And we probably wouldn't have the training to stay alive in any sort of attack situation. But he has that. He's able to create freaking awesome traps, by the way. Like that scene where he is making the trap to capture the one. I thought it was was just so ingenious and brilliant. Something out of like The Last of Us or Uncharted. Yes, it 100% feels like that for sure. And, you know, and then the ability to not rush in after the dog in the dark, 
I don't know that I mentally would have that kick in fast enough. That's my problem. Like, I feel like I would just run in to get the dog and, and I'd be dead before I could mentally check out and go, Oh, oops. I've got to not do that. Or I have to go in here carefully. There's so many moments of lapse that would cause you to die in this world. And he doesn't have those. He's super well trained. And so I think that, you know, it's both makes it, it makes the story work and it makes it possible because that's who the character is. But it also shines a light on the fact that this is not an everyman that is like why the last man, right? Where alas, poor Yorick, he's nothing special and, you know, he's just wandering through the world or whatever. But like you have to have some skill sets in order to be able to make it through this. And he does. And you and I don't. Uh, did did you think that the fact that he was kind of perfectly suited to this, did that affect you at all when you're watching this? Did it kind of take away from anything or did you just accept it for what it was and enjoy it that way? I accepted it because I don't know that that was necessarily the the main crux of the of the movie was, oh, is he going to be believable as both a military person and a scientist? No, I mean. The crux of the movie eventually became this connection between him and his dog, him and his family, and him and the zombies indirectly. And I think that just like something like The Walking Dead, having a mysterious thing, a MacGuffin, if you want to call it that, in the background as part of a problem to be solved and not the main thing really amplified my enjoyment of this movie. I watched the alternate ending version and I I think that when you see everything that goes on in this movie, the fact that he has this dual occupation, you could argue that that isn't realistic i think it is personally because in this day and age we have doctors who are also military people and these dual roles that matter i think that there wasn't so much emphasis on the cure itself that it distracted me from seeing how he was able to work through all the stuff of living in this destroyed city fighting these zombies meeting these new people and then eventually getting to the the end of the film. So the horror part of this, the main horror part, not the horror part that I find in it particularly, but the dark seekers, as they're called, actually get relatively little screen time. They're not there very often, frankly. And I was kind of surprised by that. I thought maybe they would have a bigger role, but it's you know one big initial moment where he meets them, uh, or not meets them, but where he ends up capturing one. And then you get another scene at the end where you get the kind of attack on his home and the rushing in of bunches and bunches of them, which is obviously terrifying. But how did the portrayal of the infected go for you compared to other zombies or infected or vampires? 
uh, in film and TV because I will say I think that their design is phenomenal. I think that they look humanoid enough to really creep me the heck out. And I think that their sound design is exceptional. That That's what sticks out to me. I found myself constantly wanting to reach for the remote control to turn it down because their screech is so high-pitched and just... It is an absolutely piercing and distinguishing feature of these things. And they're, they're super fast and yet they don't, I like, or I guess I do like that they have a reason for why they eat. Like they're not your traditional vampire who is self-aware and doing it to stay alive, but they're also not fully a zombie who has no cognitive function really whatsoever and is just random synapses driving their actions as we find out. And so I think that they, man, they just, they, they end up kind of filling in this great middle ground between those two classic uh, monster designs for me. And I really, really work. Yeah. I co-sign all that. I think what makes them work for me is their protruding mouths when they scream. It's a little bit, ugh. CGI heavy, but it's very grotesque and and scary. And the fact that they're nimble, the fact that they can move that quickly, the fact that they have that blend of being aware, but also being pretty chaotic. So it's kind of like they're living in the id and the superego kind of realm of their brain, which says a lot about the about the illness, about how it degrades and how it takes away that cognitive ability. And that's what I think is really good about Robert's dual background is that during his scientific section, when he is doing the experiments, his journaling is giving us exposition. He's telling us how this works, what phases they're at, and it helps to give us context, which really does help amplify how the story progresses and gives you a different perspective as you're going through especially watching it for a second time going all right i'm going to look at it with fresh eyes kind of like what we do with ex machina i'm going to look at it from a different perspective this time but i think from a design standpoint there is i think there's a little too i don't say too much cgi but the cgi was as someone who doesn't notice that more than most i found it a little bit more obvious but it absolutely did not take away my enjoyment of watching them on screen. And they were scary. I mean, they were absolutely scary knowing that things are flying back and forth. And especially when he's got the one on the table that just starts freaking out, that's tied down. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'm out. And uh, yeah, I loved them. Well, I'm glad because I did too. And I think that part of that is also because like I said, they're not there frequently and it's also a short movie i think the more screen time you get with them the easier it is to start picking them apart and the more time you're going to spend and learning about them the more you can be like oh that doesn't quite work or that does quite work i think that it's just the pacing of them and and their usage in this film is really expertly chosen and and it works it makes it stronger because of that um and, and hearing them off screen is just as terrifying frankly, before they come at you, you know, full bore. So 
Like the clickers, man. It's like the clickers. Like the clickers, yeah. We're going to keep going to Last of Us. It, it does feel a lot like The Last of Us. Like, it really has that similar vibe to it. And I know we could probably say that about a ton of different post-apocalyptic movies, or we might want to say that about a ton of post-apocalyptic movies, but I certainly felt it strongly in this one uh, in particular. Well, late in the film, he meets, uh, oh gosh, what's her name? Do you remember her name? I don't. You don't. Of course you don't. You're terrible with names. Yep, and I fully admit that. He meets Anna. Okay, and her son. Is it her son? I think a relative. Yeah, I couldn't tell if it was her son or just some kid that was with her. Uh, Her companion. Yeah, he meets Ethan. And, which is kind of jarring, frankly, when you're watching the movie, because you're like, why are these people here? (laughs) Where did they come from? Is he hallucinating was one of the thoughts I had for quite a while. Like, is he making them up in his head, especially considering what he had just gone through? Uh, getting captured and being in this trap and being stuck out overnight and then kind of going on like a man's killing spree just like to try and run them all over, which was awesome, and getting himself like <laughs> surrounded. And anyway, so she wake they wake up and I really like how this goes down. There's they're in his house and she's making breakfast and we get a really strong emotional moment from Robert about how he was saving this bacon for a very special occasion. And I thought that that was just a nice touch uh, in the story. And they're telling him that, you know, they've been coming down here and that there are other people. And he's like, no, there's no, it, this is a common trope. There's a survivor's colony, right? This one's in Vermont. It's, this is more of this is like the last of us too. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want to believe that. You're always going to have that person. And, he gets over it pretty quickly. Again, another quality of him that I really like, man, is that he is able to adjust and he comes down and he has that really fun scene where he starts quoting Shrek and talking about how he really likes uh, the movie because of how Shrek and Donkey decide to team up because Shrek doesn't have any friends. And, I loved it, man, because I thought like that is so applicable to his situation. I mean, it, it was obviously put in there. It's a metaphor. It's comparison to what he is going through. He is Shrek in this, and he's there, the donkey, who are like kind of forcing themselves into his world, and it's hard for him to want to accept that and do that. And I, and I like that. I think that he doesn't necessarily see them as a fill-in for his wife and his kid in a romantic sense which is important to me. He just understands and sees them as a fill in emotionally because they're human, <laughs> because there's someone that can talk back to him. Um, and I like that. I like that she calls him on it. She says to him, you're not so good with people anymore. Are you? And, and I'm like nodding my head like, yeah, no, no crap. Like, what do you expect after however many five years or whatever? Uh, are you going to get with him? I wanted to ask you about, part of their conversation they're talking about what happened in new york city and or they're i'm sorry they get down in the um the basement and he shows her the specimen that he's been working on and treating and all of the ones he's been trying to use to find a cure and anna's like oh my gosh she's like did all of them die and robert says yes and she says my god and he says 
God didn't do this. We did. And that was a big line for me. I thought that it was um, a very mature way to look at it. And I wonder how many people would think of it that way. And it made me think about, again, COVID and just the fact that so many parts of any pandemic happening, as you will quickly learn if you watch Contagion, is the way in which it gets spread, the way in which people allow things to get out of hand. And in this case, they were trying to play God, in a sense. They were trying to cure cancer, right? And uh, and I just I thought that that was a really good line. And, and it also talks to her about the Bob Marley song. Did that stick out to you at all? Did you catch the explanation about why he loves Bob Marley? Yeah, a little bit. And I think that if to what you were talking about regarding COVID, there is there's something to be said about a man-made thing, but then there's something to be said about the personal responsibility, whether it's man-made or not, and how it can be prevented. And I remember, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with somebody when it came to how we think about things in the world of social media and the internet and the knowledge we gain and how there's cognitive dissonance all over the place, cognitive or confirmation bias, uh, echo chamber, all these different buzzwords and phrases. And something that he said was, we kind of live in a world of me search as opposed to research where we tend to individualize everything. And if it's not affecting me, it's probably not true, which is a very true thing. What it got me wondering though, Aaron, is a, if a disease like this that was man-made or done from a chemical whatever started spreading, how responsible would we feel as individuals if we were given the same kinds of restrictions? Hey, this thing is spreading like wildfire. You need to stay indoors. You need to cover your face. Would we still have that same kind of lockdown mentality or would we fight it and say, look, I don't have to wear a mask. I didn't create this. It was the government or it was whoever, and I'm going to go ahead and live my life. That's kind of what was going through my head when that whole conversation was happening. The Bob Marley reference I thought was pretty fantastic, though. I thought that his explanation of it, it provided context and weight to really why he was doing what he was doing. I don't know if it was guilt necessarily, but more of redemption. I think he was really trying to feel redemptive as opposed to satisfying a guilt. Agreed. Wholeheartedly agreed. And I think that the way he words it is beautiful. It was almost my connecting point. He tells her about that artist in general. And, and I didn't know that Bob Marley had had an attack on his life and, you know, played a concert two days later, which is the story he's explaining. But he's talking about how he says Bob Marley believed that you could literally cure racism and hate by injecting love into people's lives by the way of music. And then he says, the people who are trying to make this world worse are not taking a day off. How can I light up the darkness? Which is fascinating to me because moments later, after he says, light up the darkness, they are talking about how KV had this 90% kill rate, 5.4 billion dead. He's giving these absolutely horrific stats. 
less than 1% immunity and 588 million turned into these things, right? And he's like, and they killed and they fed on everyone left. And he says, every single person that you or I have ever known is dead, dead. There is no God. There is no God. And so he is exhibiting a belief in exactly what believing in God would lead you to believe or lead you to act like. And yet he is with his mouth trying to proclaim that there is no God. And I just, I just find that always really interesting in characters um, because his actions would say otherwise. <laughs> his mouth is obviously fighting that and his brain is fighting that because his heart is hurting, but he is acting in a way that is consistent with faith in my opinion. And, and I love that about his character. Well, the film has famously two different endings. So there's the theatrical ending, which it kind of got panned for. And then there is the extended ending or the alternate ending, I guess you would say, which is the one that I think you and I both watched on the version that we were watching. But I wanted to talk about this and kind of briefly mention what happens in both and just get your thoughts on this, which one you think better wraps up the story. So in the theatrical ending of the movie, he is tells Anna and Ethan that the hemocytes, AKA dark seekers aren't going to stop chasing them. And of course they come in, they attack them in the basement and ultimately the alpha male is so threatening that Robert stashes a vial of the test subject's blood with Anna and Ethan in the safe space. And then he takes a grenade, runs in to the army of hemocytes and kills himself in order to kill all of them and save them. And it ends with uh, a monologue of Anna and Ethan who are still on their way to Vermont and they're talking about how brave Robert Neville was and how he cured KV in his last moments. And it actually shows us that Anna gets up to this colony, that it is still active and she hands over the cured blood to the authorities, essentially saying he, he did it right. He sacrificed his life. He found the cure. There are more people and now they will be able to save the world. So it wraps it up with a pretty nice little bow. Tells you exactly what's going to essentially happen. In the alternate ending that we watched, Neville kind of actually understands and watches what the alpha male is doing. And instead of seeing it purely as aggression, realizes that he is trying to save the alpha female, which is the the one that he has had testing on this whole time. And so I think what he is really realizing is more like he's the villain, like he's the bad guy to them. They see him as someone who came into their home and stole one of their own or multiple of their own and have been killing them is the way that they're looking at this because they don't understand what he's doing and why. And instead of portraying them as like mindless zombie brutes to be blown up with a grenade, then they are portrayed as more of a social group than 
otherwise would, would be seen in the original ending. And so he actually does some emotional apologizing here for what he has done to them in the past. And he tries to atone for his actions by releasing the alpha female back to her mate without taking the cure, right? And at the end, we see him with Anna and Ethan, and they're all still alive. The alpha male accepts this offering, and they all leave. And so the three of them are able to leave New York City. They are heading to Vermont, and we actually get a re-recording of Robert's original message that he had played every single day at the pier, but Anna is the one who is recording it, saying the same same type of thing, where she's saying, hey, anyone who is still alive, please come up north. This is where we're going to be. We will take care of you. We will We will be there for you. And it's very ambiguous as to what's going to happen. Is there a colony? Don't know. Don't know what's going to happen to these people on the road. Don't know if they're ever going to find a cure. Does it matter? That's a lot of me explaining. So (laughs) which one of those do you like better and why? I think both are fine. Well, no, one's better. (laughs) The alternate ending is better. Both work in their own right. The theatrical cut the theatrical ending works if you're looking at a survival horror story as your story and trying to find a cure and it's all about making sure that a cure is found and i'm going to be heroic the alternate ending plays really interestingly into my connecting point in fact had i not seen the alternate ending my connecting point would have been something different but i think what the alternate ending does for me is it adds that philosophical level that I like in my... It's what gives the movie drama, essentially. It goes beyond surviving and zombie apocalypse and all that kind of stuff. And it leans into the idea that we get a sense of who's really the bad guy here, who's really the zombie. It allows us to ask the question, There was an episode of Black Mirror that did the same thing in a similar way using hallucinations uh, with a group of people. And I thought that was pretty incredible, obviously for different reasons. But this idea of preconceptions and misunderstandings (laughs) and to a point stereotypes maybe and bigotry. I don't know if you could have bigotry towards these uh, these creatures, but, you know, in this case, maybe. But watching it play out, it gave significance to several other things that we saw in the film. And I think what it did is it added a, a level of, of empathy and value to these creatures that don't get a lot of screen time. What I also like is that it's closer to the adaptation of the book. And I enjoyed the ending of the book quite a bit. But I think it's kind of a middle ground of the book adaptation and the theatrical one in that we get the same idea in terms of the philosophy that the book does, but we don't get necessarily a happy ending. <laughs> and I won't spoil the, the story for anybody, but I will say that it's worth reading the short story. You get a lot of the uh, similar story beats in in the movie plot with this alternate ending 
that you do in the book. So if you like that ending, if you like that story being told, the short story itself is going to be a good one for you. I prefer the the alternative ending, like hands down, without question, like by a landslide for exact reasons you just mentioned. Plus, just it doesn't feel consistent to me the way he is trying so hard to find a cure and it's so important to him. And I guess, I guess sacrificing himself makes some sense in a sense that he is trying to atone for his wife and daughter's death in a way he is trying to take the bullet for them, you know, in a sense here by letting Anna and Ethan live and not letting them be taken by the monsters as he sees them. There's a, a whole thing with a butterfly. Some point early in the film there or in the flashbacks, there's a memory of his dead daughter who is telling him to look at the butterflies, which he then kind of follows on as like a symbol of fate throughout the movie. And it's in this ending where it shows its head the butterfly tattoo, we actually see it on the alpha female on the dark seeker in the alternate ending, but in the original it's on Anna. And so that's how the movie is telling us that he is trying to protect her, that that's his fate. I just love the way that the alternate ending plays out though. It's just so much more emotional and it's there's so much more feeling in it for me and, and i guess it's just different it's different than i'm gonna sacrifice myself to save you that seems like it's been done so many times and so i guess in a way you're not you're right it's not terrible it's just that the other one to me is so much more intriguing and interesting and i like the ambiguity of it and i like that we get a moment where he screams through the glass at the alpha male who is like banging his head on the glass right he's about to break it down it's terrifying and what is robert saying he's saying i can fix this i can save everybody it's working he says i can save you he says let me save you he is begging these creatures to let them he wants them to let him save them right and i love to me that feels consistent with robert's character throughout the movie and it fits better i think yeah yeah because to the to the credit of the theatrical one, which I agree, I, hands down, I think the alternate ending is a lot better for all the reasons you mentioned. If you were going to defend the theatrical ending, there is something to be said about how we don't get too much information about Robert's motivation beyond, throughout the movie other than he wants to find a cure. Adding the alternate ending allows him to look both backwards and forwards when it comes to a cure. Normally, when we think about finding a cure, we're looking at everybody in front of us, not the people behind us that are now zombified. Oh, they're a lost cause. What we have, we're using these guys as guinea pigs. Now we're going to see what it's like on the people that actually matter. The alternate ending looks both forward and backwards. And in that moment you mentioned him yelling, I can save you, I can save you, is very consistent with who we see him as throughout the film as someone who wants to find a cure that alternate ending just adds agency to both a forward and a backward looking character which in my opinion is different enough to make it the better ending all right well with that 
it's time to move on to the final section here and our connecting points. And I will let you go ahead and get us started with yours. Well, mine is the scene where he is driving up to, I think it's a museum. I can't remember what the building is, but it's what I call the convert, the shooting of quote, Fred unquote, and the repercussions that come from that early on. We see him interacting with these different mannequins and he runs across this particular mannequin named Fred that has um, an outfit on that's very recognizable. Later, we see him driving up the road and he sees this mannequin out in the middle of the street and he's yelling at Fred. He's like, what are you doing? And it's a little bit comical. It's a lot depressing (laughs) because of the fact that we're thinking, has he gone around the bend? Has he quite, in fact, lost it because he's yelling at Fred? What's he thinking? And and that scene, Aaron, is one that I think says so much about his psyche at that point. Because I think he is talking to, I think he's both hallucinating that it's a real person and at the same time recognizing that it's not and interacting with him because he's built this kind of false rapport with and when he yells tell me you're real tell me you're real and then he eventually shoots him that whole setup then leads to this attack later on well not attack but it leads to him getting trapped and then eventually getting sam infected because these like demon dogs come out or these psycho dogs come out along with the the infected but as I said before, that scene has a different context when it comes to the alternate ending. And this is my interpretation. I think that the trap, Fred being moved to that place, was all done by the Alpha. Which tells me that he has a conscious mind, he's not just mindless, and that he's actually setting a trap for him and he wants to be able to he traps robert and then eventually uh sends out an attack for him and so when we get to the end of the film and we start seeing that robert's actually the one who they're trying to escape from that scene itself turns the whole narrative up on its head because now when you look at the movie through the eyes of the infected of the zombies now you're starting to see this anger of a man who you know apart from not seeing him as someone who's trying to save the world he's simply a guy trying to kill and trying to find bodies to experiment on and so watching that scene play out knowing that it was potentially the zombies that set that whole scene up, it reinforces the fact that these guys have cognitive ability. They have emotions. They have the ability to make choices, even though they can't talk, even though they seem primitive, they're actually not. And I also love seeing Will Smith's character just break down. And of course it was the beginning stages of seeing Sam eventually start turning over i hate you know in my heart i hate seeing a dog hurt but i love seeing how he picked her up 
carried her to safety. And then, of course, it led to eventually her demise, which was incredibly sad. But um, that all started with that particular scene. It's good stuff. I, You know, I love that it's ambiguous. It's, see, that's why I like the ending, right? It's ambiguous. What you just proposed, that theory, is completely believable. And I think there's a world in which we could make the case that he loses his mind sometimes after five years and that he set a trap there and completely forgot that he moved the mannequin and he is starting to go a little bit nutso because of the situation that he's in. And maybe he moved the mannequin in order to surprise himself so that he would have something to react to. You know what I mean? Like, there's a lot of subconscious work that can be done when you've been on your own this many years. And so I yeah. love, love, love that because what's great is when a story like this lets you read it multiple ways. It lets you feel it. It lets you take it in, critique it, and kind of like come away with what you think. But it doesn't mean that what somebody else thinks is necessarily different. And that's where that theatrical ending or yeah, theatrical ending kind of like takes that away from us by telling us this is exactly what happened. You don't get a choice in the matter to believe what you want anymore. Um, so that is, I, and I love the way you just explained that. And you're right. That was a very close one for me as well. Just that whole sequence. Mine has some of the similar undertones to it and the reasoning. And it, it really, for me was the moment that broke my heart other than Sam dying, but broke my heart for Robert. And it was, I guess what I would say is where I feel like he is alone the most. It's after Sam's death. It's after all of these things took place. And he walks into that video store. The same one that he walked into before. And it was a really fun kind of happier scene where we got to see him like, oh, he's chipper. He's talking to the employee mannequins and going on his little trip to rent a movie. This time, the demeanor is all different. The tone is all different when he walks in and he talks to this mannequin who he specifically calls his friend. And it's after he just buried the dog, like I said, and so he's alone. And he goes up and he's like really close in camera shot on his face. And he's like, hello. He's like, hello. And he says he just keeps repeating himself. He says, please say hello to me. Please say hello to me. And he starts begging this mannequin to be real. <laughs> like he is fully living in the realization that he is now by himself. And you understand in that moment, subsequently, just how much the dog meant to him and how much Sam was a critical part of him actually surviving this long and getting to this point. And as alone as he has been without human contact for all of these years, this moment and this realization is like the most horrific thing in the movie for me. The feeling of like what that would be like the point where you're like, you just, you don't care like any inanimate object. He does He needs something to be alive in order to have the will to live. And it, and it shows us that because his subsequent catharsis, I think, then right after that helps to bring me myself out of that kind of morose that I'm in that sadness that I'm feeling with him because we watch him go through this and it's both 
entertaining from a, a visual film watching standpoint, but it's also scary in its own right because he's reckless now for the first time because he just takes that SUV out at night and he just starts running over dozens and dozens of infected uh, Dead Rising video game style, like just massive amounts of them. And it's all in retaliation for losing his dog, right? He is just completely lost all semblance of care and he just wants revenge in that moment. And so it's like a great action scene, but because of why we got there and because of what it means to him, it's not like the same type of action scene that you would see in Zombieland. Instead, it's incredibly heartbreaking, even though it's really high paced and, and interesting to watch um, from that action standpoint. So yeah, that was kind of like mine was just that, that whole moment of complete understanding and realization of being alone. And then the cathartic act of trying to reckon with that in an insanely reckless manner right afterwards. Good stuff, man. Great connecting point. Well, that wraps up another episode here at feeling film. In just a few days, we will conclude our two-part basketball love conversation with the high school b-ball classic Hoosiers. Also, if you are a faithful patron, you will see some bonus content in your feed here shortly, or right now, depending on when you're actually listening to it, and that will release to the rest of our awesome listeners here in a couple of weeks. If you want that access now, check out patreon.com slash film for more information on how you can be a part of that patron family. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.